this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Welcome to Unapologetically Bold, I'm Not Sorry For. If you are a person that is tired of apologizing for being you, you know, the human part of you that sometimes feels like it has to be different at home versus work versus play, the human side that just wants to be hot, humble, open, and transparent about your wants, desires, and uniqueness. If you answered yes, this is for you. Join me, Emily Elrod, as I dive into conversations with amazing guests about what they are not sorry for in creative and loving ways. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Unapologetically Bold I'm Not Sorry For. And I am so excited today to have a friend with me, Sarah. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Well, um, my name's Sarah, and I moved to Montana from Washington, D.C. 21 years ago. And um, in the last 20 years, I've learned how to help leaders and people who aspire to be leaders share the right stories at the right time to inspire others and connect more authentically and deeply, building advocates and building people who want to help you live your best life. Mm, I love it. And I love the part that you're talking about stories because that's a big thing on here is to be what we say is a hot human who is humble, open, and transparent. Stories really connect. It's a connector that we can relate with others and also continue our mission of spreading humanity and being real and authentic with one another. So I'm excited for this conversation and would love to just go ahead and dive on into it. So the show's called Unapologetically Bold. I'm going to ask you, Sarah, what are you no longer apologizing for? I am not apologizing for removing the word should from my vocabulary, both in my internal dialogue and my external one. Oh, I love it. And this, I think, is going to elicit a lot of great stories that come from it. When did you first realize that you had you needed to do this? Well, you know, the first thing was when um, I read this article by my friend Susan Rooks that talked about a mechanic that was shooting all over her. <laughs> and basically, um, she had been going to this mechanic for a long time. And when she went after it had been too long between oil changes, he was giving her such a hard time. You should have done this 600 miles ago. You should do this. You should do that. And she walked away from this situation feeling really icky. You know, just like he was being condescending and just a little rude, I guess. And she never went back to him. And she had been going to this mechanic for a long time. And I read this article and I thought, yes, I totally agree. You, you shouldn't should on people. And oh. it was later that day, I was talking to one of my sons who was a teenager at the time. And I said, Jacob, you should think about. <laughs> and I like, I sucked that word right back into my mouth and went, maybe consider because should sound so condescending. Well, the irony is that later that day, I was in my room thinking about going to the gym <laughs> and the word should popped into my mouth or into my head. I thought I should go to the gym. And then it dawned on me that I was shooting on myself. Mm, and and so that changed, it changed everything for me. And I think that's powerful too that what I've seen a lot of times of communication internal and external is these 
preconceived expectations that we are putting on ourselves. So fast forward to now, how has the power of not shooting on anybody or yourself impacted your life? Well, the, the first thing that I can share is that I, I still struggle every once in a while with the should in my head because you know we're raised with certain expectations, obligations, and guilt. We're just raised with that no matter where we're raised. And I still every once in a while fight with that in my head. But here's what I do every time now that I hear should in my head to myself, I make a decision. I think, is this should mine? Does it actually belong to me? Or is this a should that somebody else is putting on me? Is it my mother's should? Is it my neighbor's should? Um, and, And then the next question is, okay, if it's not mine, I get to let it go. It's not mine anymore. My sister would say, that's not your baggage. Leave it. And so I, you know, I, I imagined myself taking this, this huge, heavy suitcase out of the trunk of my car and putting it on the sidewalk and driving away. That's not my should. I don't need to own it anymore. But if it's mine, that's when it really matters to me. That's when I decide either do it right now or don't do it. The should mm-hmm. just adds this layer of obligation to something. And nobody feels good about obligation. Nobody feels good about obligation. And so to me, if you think in terms of, okay, it's mine, either I'm going to go to the gym right now or I'm not going to go. And if I'm not going to go, I'm not going to feel guilty about it because it's mine. I own it. That is so powerful. So people that are listening in on that, I just want you to understand there's so much power in owning your should. And I'm going to start using this too, because I feel like those are things that I struggle with myself in the aspect of example today. And it's just an example that I see that a lot of times people do is taking things that are said that they should do or how they should feel or how they should think and bringing it as facts. And my son heard something on a cartoon and he's like, it was that the thumb is your smartest part of your brain. I'm like, what? And it, I didn't say what. He analyzed it. And I think the important part of it is, and this is what I told him, I am so proud of you because you looked at the validity of it and seeing if it's actually valid to you and or if this fact is actually valid. And that's what I see with this should is it is a valid thought. Is it mine? Or is it someone else's? So for somebody that's hearing this for the first time, and one, maybe like me and like, oh, I can nerd out on this all day. But but hearing this and being like, okay, so practical steps. Sounds easier said than done. What are some of the lessons that you have learned to help hold yourself accountable to understanding well, your should? Really, the the external ones have been um, the easiest to remove. So when it comes to working with a coaching client, I have completely removed the word should from my vocabulary because I don't want to come across as if I know something that they don't know. Um, And so I've removed that. And instead, I've replaced that with something that is more meaningful. So for instance, um, instead of saying, you should try for a new job or you should leave your job. I might say, have you thought about what it would mean to leave your job? Mm. 
what would that look like for you? What, what would be the replacement for that? And, and what would be the first step if you decided you wanted to do that? So if they're asking me for specific guidance, how, how should I start this? I'll say, well, if I were going to start it, this is what I would do. Mm -hmm. And that comes across completely differently than saying, you should do this first, and then you should. And so in, in some ways, especially with our, our young adult sons who are now 19 and 22, um, if I say you should do this, I see them just completely dismiss me. Mm. You can see it in their faces. So it's, it's kind of like the word, but I love you, but mm -hmm. you, you, you just completely took away that first part of the sentence that, but just completely, it, it, it negated the whole, the whole first part of the sentence. Cause all they hear is the second half of it. The same thing happens with should. As soon as you put the word should into the sentence, they've shut you off because you're coming across as if you're telling them what to do. And very few people want to be told what to do. And those who do don't want to hear it in that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's been my experience. That's absolutely beautiful. And it makes me think of the work that I do with wellness and safety. And it's that command and compliance aspect that I have found to not be effective because I always say, you can't make me mar run a marathon. I'm not going to make you run. Like you should not say should and like demand people, give them choice. Mm -hmm. And like, even in that, like it's an invitation for me exactly. and saying you should not, let's have an invitation of a choice for others. Because if you've been on this podcast long enough, y'all know that I'm going to about to mention Desi and Ryan, self-determination theory, yeah. something I absolutely love. And it talks about competency, which is the knowledge need to have it, autonomy, the freedom to have it, and relatedness. What I found specifically with free world countries like America, you tell somebody that they should do something, we were going to do the opposite. <laughs> we were <revolt. laughs> We have been given choice. We are not a robot. So talk to people a minute about ways to reframe that in ways of like you, I know that you said earlier, but some, some additional steps that you have found like in your practice or in your personal life of eliminating should in effective ways. Sure. Um, I can really relate to your whole um bringing up compliance because I was a compliance officer for a major federal grant. <laughs> and um, I lived, I eat, slept, eat, sleep, breathe compliance for, oh, about two and a half years. And I found that the more I built relationships with the subgrantees, the less I had to bring down a heavy hammer about compliance. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of particularly one of our subgrantees who was struggling with doing the reporting that I was asking him to do. And instead of saying, you should do this every day, I said, what is one way that I could help you make sure that this gets done every day? Mm -hmm. What Offering them resources, um, asking them what their ideas are can really change that whole dynamic. So in this case, I said, I must have this information by every Friday at four o'clock. I must have this information in order to complete my reports so that our grant is compliant with our funders. 
Mm. What can I do to help make sure that you get your data to me in time? That's a totally different thing than me saying, you should do this every day so that I get my data on time. Or mm. you should try this. And I, I could, like, I, I was so close to saying, you should try writing this down every day and then just send all of it to me on the same day. Or you mm -hmm. can send it to me every single day if you want. You don't have to wait till the end of the week. And I almost said, you should just send me this every day. But then I said, I know you have daily routines. We've already talked about some of your daily routines. What if we just added this to your daily routine? Hmm, that's so, so powerful. It is. What if we did this? What, what can I do to help you with a good strategy to make this work? And I do the same thing with our boys. Um, instead of saying, you should clean your room, I say, you can't find the tool that you wanted to use yesterday because your room is a mess. What can I do to help you get it cleaned up? Mm. And the thing is, Brene Brown, clear as kind. And I think that's huge as you're talking about too, is it's not that you're you're eliminating should and then being what some people would say soft or a pushover. Right. It is that you are eliminating should not for a power play, but it's in the aspect of clear expectations of this is what is needed. And it goes to what I call the Socratic method and asking questions, letting the learner learn <laughs> what is best and what will work for them. How powerful is that for your people? How have you seen that in the work that you do whenever they take ownership of it? Well, one of my favorite situations was when I was helping a coaching client through um, trying to uncover a specific story. So I had asked him about something that had happened and it and, and was at work. And he was talking about how um, the, the person that was being abusive to him, this was in a job many years before, but it was still grating on him. And he was trying to uncover why it was still bothering him because it was a pivotal time in his career. So he said, um, well, this, this guy was just so rude to me and I didn't know what to say. I said, I'll bet you have some ideas of what you would have said if you could have done it before. He said, yeah. I said, well, we all do that, right? 10 minutes later, or even a year later, we're like, I should have said, do you do that? He said, yeah. And I said, well, practice with me. He said, what do you mean? I said, pretend like I'm the guy and say what you should have said five years ago, what is in your head of what you think you should have said five years ago. So he said it out loud. And I looked at him and I said, did that work? Did it make you feel better? He said, not really. I said, <laughs> why? He said, because I had been telling myself I should have said this all these years. And now that I'm saying it out loud, I realized that, was a, that would have been a stupid thing to say to him. Mm. I said, so you can let go of that should have. I should have said. And he said, yeah, I can let that go now. That's so powerful, too, in the aspect that we make things up in our mind and how those internal shoulds can keep shooting themselves. Like almost, that almost makes me think of shooting yourself in the foot, but shooting yourself in the foot, you know, like you're self-sabotaging. And when you're away from the situation, sometimes it feels like 
you can make it bigger and worse than it originally was. And so that practicing of it brings it to reality and humanity. I think that's important to it as well. And that's why I guess what I note on real quick is the human side of it. For people, they're like, ah, oh, this ain't going to work. How could you help them understand that this is a part of humanity and that a lot of us probably wrestle with this? Sure. Well, I, I like to use images. I'm all about analogies and stories to help us um, really apply learning rather than just talk about it. Because I'm I'm a very practical person and I know that surprises people a lot because I'm a storyteller, I'm a storytelling coach. I, I help people uncover their stories. It doesn't sound really practical, but it is a very practical thing that I do when I'm working with my clients because it helps them connect with others. And so when I think about the power of removing should, I think about it as that image that my sister gave me so many years ago. It was when we were on the phone and I was pretty upset about something my mom had said to me and it had been a should. She was saying, you should do, you should say, you know, it was all that Mm -hmm. obligation and frustration. And I was telling my sister about it and I was so frustrated. And she said, Sarah, that's not your baggage. Mm. Because it was what I realized is I could imagine that this was coming from my mom's experience that was very different from mine. And so she was speaking about her experience. She was projecting her experience onto me. And so when my sister said, she's, she's the one that gave me this visual. She said, take that stuff out of your trunk and leave it on the sidewalk. It's not yours. Mm. And from that point forward, every time I think about shoulds that belong to other people, that's what I imagine. Mm. And it's actually really easy to tell the difference between a should that's yours and a should that belongs to someone else. It is really easy, even when it comes down to your kids. Mm. So if you are, your, your kid is pretending to be sick, they don't want to go to school, it's pretending to be sick. And you think I should make him go to school. Whose is that? Ooh. That's all you. Mm. Like when you say I should make him go to school, that's not somebody else's should. That's, that's your should. And so you have to decide in that moment, you have to make a decision that either you're going to make him go to school or you're not, and you're going to live with the consequences. And I think that's the biggest thing is the consequences. Like what, what are the consequences of living with this should? Mm. And it is because it can weigh you down talking about the baggage. It literally, and how many people are walking around (laughs) with other people's baggage that is not theirs because they have never even thought of this principle or there's never been an awareness to it and that you have a choice. Exactly. And so the choosing part, how would you help somebody understand that this is, this is your choice? This is your should comparative to someone else's. I know that the I statements versus hearing it's maybe mom said I should maybe being able to tell the difference of those, but what would you, what would you say to that? What would you invite people to ponder? You know, I love your unapologetically bold. 
I mean, that, that alone is kind of the answer to that question. Mm. My husband and I moved from Washington, D.C. to Montana at, at least a thousand miles, maybe more from any of our nearest family member. And at first I was kind of sad about that because, you know, I wanted my boys to know their family and I was concerned that they weren't going to know their aunts and uncles and cousins. Um, we've made it happen so they know them. And of course, with communication tools that we have now, it hasn't really been a problem. There are times when I'm sad that my kids didn't get to know my mom and spend more time with her, but my family was all over the country anyway. But here's the thing, by moving so far away, I basically rid my life of face-to-face -face obligation. Ooh. Yeah. And that's when I realized, just like five years into it, I realized how grateful I was that I was so far away that I didn't have the family obligations that I would have been facing if I was staying in the D.C. area. Mm. And that's both sides of the family, not, my, not just my husband's family, but both sides of my family. And it was when I had that realization of how much I enjoyed not having that obligation and how powerful it is in my relationships with those people that I'm choosing my relationships with them. Mm. And that's the difference. When you say choice, that's what I think about. When, um, when I see something that reminds me of my sister-in-law and I buy it and send it to her, that has nothing to, to do with obligation. And both of us know that. Mm. And so when I do, when I take action, when I call her and catch up with her, show her pictures of our boys, um, take her on a walk with me as I'm hiking. She lives out in um, Northern Virginia. And I call her up and take her for a walk with me. Our relationship is so much stronger and so different than it would be if I only saw her when it came to obligation. Mm. Yes, there's so many things I can I can see on my own self and that and the bitterness that can come because dang it, I have to do this. It's the right thing. I want a people please, especially somebody that suffers recovering a people pleaser. <laughs> Um, but I think that goes to the note of whenever you eliminate the word should, I do not see that as selfishness. I see that as selflessness and that you're putting people forward and you're, you're letting go of your ego and your understanding that you can love your best. You can be your best by owning yourself and loving yourself and care and putting those boundaries. Mm -hmm. So talk about that for a minute on how I know that you talked about your sister and how it strengthened your relationship. But I want you to dive in a little bit more about how that has also strengthened, like maybe with your family, like your immediate family, your a significant other. Sure. Your kids. Yeah. Well, let's, I'm going to turn this around on you a little bit. When somebody does something for you or shows up for you and you know, they're only doing it because they feel obligated to, how does that make you feel? Icky, right? Mm -hmm. He's only he's only here because he thinks he should be. Mm -hmm. He's only calling me because he thinks he has to. That right. it's this obligation. And unless you ask, are you doing? And what are they going to say? Oh <laughs> no, of course not. I totally want to come and help you move. <laughs> that seems really unlikely. So in my family. Our children know, both of our boys know when I do something for them, it is absolutely because I want to. 
because mm. I choose to, because I love them, because I value them, because I respect and admire them. It's not because I feel obligated to do it. That's huge, especially for any parents listening to this or leaders listening to this as well. That is one thing I do want to know is it's without an agenda. It's without an obligation. I always joke with people that I don't joke, I actually do it. But whenever I come and talk business four times before that, I want to get to know you. And the reason why I want to have four conversations to get to know you is because I want to know you. Like I truly want to come in without an agenda and just get to know the person. So if we do decide to do business, that I can touch and connect with them at a deeper level. Mm -hmm. Comparative to giving, expect again, obligations, expectations. And I tell my kids this all the time. The day that you start feeling like I should be doing something, it's probably going to be removed. For me, the reason why is I believe that's entitlement. And that's a thing that I cringe against whenever they feel like they're entitled to my responses and that they are no, thing, no longer seeing it as something that I get to do. I want to do. I love to do. Like I joked with you after this, me and the kids are going to go run in puddles <laughs> and because we have a big storm and we have a, an area in our area that we can go play in puddles. It's not something that we should do. It's something that we get to do. And how much more you cherish that moment and you're mindful of those moments whenever you get to you get to do something that you mm -hmm. want to do, not out of obligation. And I do want to pop up a comment. As Kelly Blackman said, there is a huge difference between choosing relationships and being obligated to be in them. Because absolutely there that's a that's a huge point. I do want to touch on real quickly is the <laughs> obligation to be in them. I've found sometimes, my example, I had a child out of wedlock. Many people told me I should marry the man that was, mm -hmm. I had the child out of wedlock. How I would not be where I am today if I would have done that. I know that. That if I was obligated to this person because of one action. And I think that's in, the difference too is choosing those relationships. And it's mine. I own it. My husband who I am married to is the most amazing man. And some of the blessings you may forego by thinking you should do stuff. Yeah. And we can turn that around as well. Kelly, that is such a great point that just the, the definition of your relationship shifts when it's out of obligation versus out of choice. And there are two situations that that just popped into my head. One is um, the obligation to be in a relationship with somebody in your family. So I have a friend who has a mother that is severely abusive to her. And she always has been. And this woman is in her 30s. And her mother has done enough damage. Mm -hmm. And it she feels obligated to have a relationship with her mother because she's her mother. And I get that. I totally understand that. There's a point though, where you get to choose and maybe you can't choose whether you have a relationship with your mom, because that's something that just feels so innately connected to you, but you do get to choose to set the boundaries on that relationship, to have the relationship on, on your conditions and not on hers. 
So you don't get to be surprised by her abuse because you've known it all along. But if you're choosing to have relationship with her, you get to choose the circumstances and how that happens. The other side of that was um, when our boys were really little, they were like, I don't know, three and five years old. And my husband had to leave town for five weeks. He was gone for a week, came back for four days, and then traveled all the way to Afghanistan and Indonesia for four more weeks. So he was gone for almost five weeks in a row. And I remember those first few days of being a single parent to two toddlers and working part-time. And I was exhausted. Like I was so fatigued. Just getting them into bed was an ordeal. And then of course, I'd have to go downstairs and do some more work or finish cleaning the kitchen or have a glass of wine and read my book, whatever it was. And then we'd get up and start all over again. And I remember just being so exhausted. But after three or four days, we got into a routine. We, we figured out how to make this work for the three of us and the dogs. And we did fine. It was still exhausting. I had a huge respect and admiration for people who do this on their own forever. I, I, I mean, just these weeks in a row were exhausting. So I, I could finally kind of wrap my head around what that looked like permanently. But I didn't have to. So my husband comes home. And I have this wonderful dinner set up and we're all trying to readjust to our schedules, which anyone who's had a, a military partner deployed and come back, you know what I mean by having to readjust and, and find a new routine again, which is a struggle. So we're sitting at dinner and we're all laughing, telling jokes, whatever's going on. And I looked at my husband and I said, you know, I really missed you. And the boys are like, you know, now they're going to kiss again. But. I said, no, I, I really missed you. And I said, but the most important thing about this was that I missed you because I miss your company. I missed you being around. I didn't feel like I needed you. Mm. And of course, my husband, his first response, and I don't know if you go with these personality things, but he's a cancer. And so his mm -hmm. first response was, what do you mean you don't need me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, oh, oh, that wasn't right. But then he realized what I was saying, that I, that I choose him, that I'm with mm. him because I choose him, not because I need him. Mm. And I remember having this conversation in front of our boys. And then many years later, one of them had a girlfriend and they were talking about that at the dinner table, at our dinner table, when my younger son said, yeah, it's really important to choose the person, not to need the person. Mm, that is very powerful in the aspect that not only did you gain give him confidence and oh man that is and I know that the impact so people that are hearing this are like okay I think she's finally convinced me <laughs> um, and then what would you tell people that are apologizing for eliminating the word should? I would tell you, I would suggest that when you eliminate the word should and you stop apologizing for it, it will strengthen your relationships. It'll strengthen your relationship with you, being able to be more intentional about the decisions you're making and the choices you make. Mm -hmm. And it will benefit your relationship with others because when they know you're choosing you, and you're choosing them in your words, in your language, in your actions, your relationships improve. So true. 
And we have another comment. How do you address has to versus choose to when the people around you are not emotionally healthy? This is a big one. I've told mm-hmm. people that I choose their company versus needing it. And many folks were offended. And just like you said in, in your conversation, your husband, I will say for me before I'm a cancer as well. And it's that need, that want, that desire like you want. And also my love language is words of affirmation. So I really want you to tell me how much I, you need me. <laughs> uh-huh. But the thing is, is the choice behind it. So I do want to go to this. How do you help people understand when they are not at possibly the maturity or the emotional healthy as Mm -hmm. others? Well, I can tell you that when I said that to my husband and I noticed I had insulted him, the, the first thing I did was I said, if I needed you, our relationship wouldn't last. It would only last as long as that need lasted. But the difference is that I choose you and I choose you every day even when it's hard, even when you make me angry, I choose you every day. And Mm -hmm. that's a much more, that's a much stronger relationship than need. That is a fact. I will say that is a hundred percent a fact in the aspect that you again, get the choice in that love and you get to grow it. And it is no longer, basically, I think back, was that symbiotic relationship? It is one where you get to choose. It's not that you need each other to survive because we've all probably seen relationships where that's happened. Mm-hmm. And at some point, both of them were so drained from giving and needing so much that it's just, oh, it implodes. It implodes. And Kelly, I really appreciate that question so much. Um, When you have to explain that you're choosing them over needing them, I think one of the important aspects is to say, um, to to address that need, we all want to be needed. We all want to be needed. But that's not necessarily the healthiest way to have a relationship. Mm -hmm. I think that's why some people end up being so hyper-absorbed in their children's lives is because they love being needed. And then there's a point, just like in every relationship, where that need starts to wane and they start to demonstrate their own independence, their own thought, their own ideas of what they want to do. You see your children going through this and it's really hard to separate that because you want them to need you. Mm. And every healthy relationship requires you to be able to set that aside, to not to be needed. My mom, when, when our younger son went to kindergarten, I walked him across the street to the kindergarten and he took off. He never even turned to look at me. He didn't kiss me goodbye. He just ran to his friends to go play. This is the first day of kindergarten, first day of school. And I was anticipating him turning around and hugging and kissing me and saying goodbye, of course, maybe even some tears. None of that happened. And I was a little offended and very, very sad. And I will never forget, I turned around and crossed the street so he wouldn't see the tears dribbling down my face. And I'm not a crier, so he would have known something was wrong. I turned my back to him and I walked back over and I, I called my mom and I just started bawling. Mom, he didn't even kiss me goodbye. And you know her first words? She said, good job, mom. Mm. 
Yes, you gave confidence to your kid. You gave safety and security to your kid. They didn't need you. Exactly. You raise your children to be independent, to Mm -hmm. contribute to society, to have their own lives. You don't raise them to be dependent on you. Mm, That is the same for any relationship. So good. And somebody said this to me before, and it took me aback for the first time. She said, thank you for raising your children as if they were contributing members of society instead of a pet. No, I've heard that before. And I'm like, (laughs) what? People raise them as a pet? (laughs) That's crazy. But the thing is, is that how we do that is that that the dogs need us. They have to have Mm -hmm. us. They have to have Mm -hmm. us to survive and to live. That's not how humans are made. (laughs) And so that really stuck with me is raising my kids as contributing members of society instead of a stimulus response. And in that they need my stimulus for them to know what response to have. And so I, I am just so blessed from this conversation. I believe this is something that will really impact people. Hopefully somebody, I know somebody has had to get something from this because I know I have. So I know we're a little bit past our time, but I'm not sorry about this. Not at all. (laughs) This was an amazing conversation. So to end it off, Sarah, where can people find you? You can find my website, elkinsconsulting.com. And that will um, take you right to the page with my book that helps people uncover their stories, their pivotal moments so that they can remove some of the obligation and guilt from their lives. Um, And also so they can address some of the internal messages that are creating patterns in their lives that they'd like to kind of figure out where that's coming from. Um, And you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on there. And my tag name on LinkedIn is The Smile is Free. Mm, I love it. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Unapologetically Bold. I'm not sorry for if this touched you in any way, please like and subscribe and share with your friends as we continue the message of being unapologetically bold by being hot humans who are humble, open and transparent. See you next time.